Let me say a brief prayer for us before we jump into this text together. Lord Jesus, I simply pray that you would show yourself to us in your love for us, in your resurrected glory, in your care for us, in all of your power and strength. Show yourself to us as we look at this text together. Have mercy on us and open our hearts to hear what you would have to say. Open my lips to speak your truth in love. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, well, if you're following uh, the Anglican Church calendar today, uh, this is the second Sunday of Easter, which means we're in a season, as you know, of meditating on and celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, On Easter Sunday, we celebrate the reality of Jesus' resurrection. And usually what we focus on is how Jesus' uh, resurrection means that the power of sin and death has been conquered because he passed through death and rose again so we can have hope. And that's really good news, right? This is true and this is wonderful. But if we're not careful, I think we can also miss some of the other important dynamics that are happening at Easter. Because Jesus' resurrection was not just a theological or a theoretical thing. It was a very physical thing. It was a flesh and blood event that took place at a particular moment in human history. And what this points to is that Jesus' physical, bodily resurrection was the starting point of a new age. It was the beginning of God recreating this physical world in the light of his victory over death. Now, this is a very large topic, (laughs) the way that God is recreating uh, and redeeming the whole earth. Uh, So there's no way to cover even a fraction of it in one sermon. But I just want us to keep this broader context in mind for what we're looking at more specifically today, that the present physical world matters so much to Jesus that he became a physical human being and died a physical human death so that when he rose again, it was the beginning of the remaking of this world. And Jesus has promised to come a second time, right, and to make all things new. Uh, Theologian N.T. Wright says it this way, Easter is the start of something. It isn't the ending. It is the beginning of the new creation, which has been made possible by the overcoming of the forces of corruption and decay in the death of Jesus. Now, as we zoom in a little bit, um, Sorry, trigger warning. Uh, (laughs) uh, As we get a little bit closer up uh, in this particular passage, Paul is describing the future resurrection of our own human bodies. Mine and yours. We're looking at the fact that our bodies will one day be resurrected into and as part of this larger, uh, completed new creation that Jesus will bring about. And so in light of this idea, the question Paul is asking to the original readers here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and the question we're going to ask ourselves this morning is, does the reality of your future bodily resurrection make any real difference in your life today? Does the reality of your future bodily resurrection make any real difference in your life today? So this is a question we're going to look at. We're going to do that in three points. Um, First, What is Paul's vision of the bodily resurrection of Christians? Second, uh, what transformative power should that 
uh, what transformative difference, I'm sorry, should that make in our lives today, if any? And then third, where does the power for this type of transformation come from? So a vision of the resurrection, the transformative power of the resurrection, and then where this power comes from. But before we um, get into Paul's vision, I want to describe what my vision of the resurrection was growing up in the Christian tradition. So I, I grew up in the church, I went to Sunday school classes, I studied the Bible, I talked about Christian things with my friends. But to be honest, I didn't think much about the resurrection. And when I did, it was kind of this foggy idea of my soul sort of floating away off into the clouds and bouncing around with angels, I guess. That's heaven. I don't know. Uh, I didn't picture anything physical. I didn't picture anything that resembled life in this world. The truth is, I always secretly worried that resurrected life would be boring. I don't know if you've ever had that thought, um, that heretical thought. (laughs) Um, I remember hoping that I wouldn't die before I got to experience all the exciting, fun things that I thought, you know, people got to experience as they got older. Um, So therefore, for me, the, the idea of the resurrection was sort of this contingency plan operating in the background that I was glad was there, but wasn't particularly excited about, and certainly didn't make any difference in my day-to-day life. Now, I'm sure you're all much more thoughtful and mature Christians than me, and your uh, view on the resurrection is much more developed than that. Uh, But I do think that my experience, in a way, represents this kind of watered-down Western church majority view um, that's yeah, that we have in the Western church. Basically, when it comes to life after death, I think what we've been taught in the Western church is as simple as when we die, our souls go to heaven to be with God. Happily ever after. But what Paul describes in these verses, and what the New Testament describes in other places as well, is utterly and completely different from what I envisioned growing up in the church. It's almost shockingly different than this Western view that we have. So let's dive in. Um, If you would, take a look at verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Which seems like a good question, but Paul says, you foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel. So pausing here, what is Paul saying? The first thing I want us to notice is the metaphor that he opens up with, which is this idea of a seed dying, being sown into the ground, and growing into a new and more glorious life. What he's saying is that although your body will perish, it's like a seed buried in the ground that will blossom into something unimaginably more full and real than what it was. He says your body now is a bare kernel of what it's going to be in the resurrection. And as I thought about this, I realized that it's almost like the view that I grew up with was saying, in your eternal life after death, you're going to become less real than you are now. You'll be less physical. Your experiences will be duller. This is sort of what I imagined without even realizing it. But just in these three verses that we've looked at, we see that in the bodily resurrection, you're going to become more real, more full, more complete, and we'll see more, but even more beautiful. 
what Paul's using this metaphor, the body is just a seed, a bare kernel of what's to come. So let's skip ahead to verse 42, continuing this metaphor. What is sown, meaning your body in death, is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. So let's go through these. Our perishable bodies will be raised imperishable. This means that everything about our bodies that tends toward death, cancer, autoimmune disease, chronic pain, sickness in general, all this will be gone. No more death. No more coronavirus. Our dishonorable bodies will be raised in glory. This means that everything about us that is shameful and sinful, all the specific ways that each of us have let greed and lust, and hate be acted out through our bodies, all of it will be made into a new body that is free of shame, that is beautiful, and that is honorable. Our weak bodies will be raised in power. This means that everything about us that feels incomplete or vulnerable, if we have disabilities, whether physical or mental, our frailties, will be replaced by a body that is complete, that is fully capable, that is indestructible. And lastly, our natural bodies will be raised spiritual bodies. And I think this is the easiest one to to misinterpret. So I just want to quote, uh, quote a helpful commentator here on the natural and spiritual. He says, The natural body and the spiritual body do not contrast a body that is made up of material stuff with a body that is made up of spiritual stuff, as if to suggest that the resurrection body will be immaterial or non-fleshly. Rather, they distinguish sharply the present body as one which belongs to the present age, which, as we talked about before, is passing away under the curse, and the resurrection body as one which belongs to the life of the Holy Spirit in the age to come. The distinction is not between material and immaterial, but between two kinds of bodies that answer to the present age and to the age to come. Now, it's kind of a mouthful, but what he's saying is that our resurrected bodies will exist in a remade world that is so in step with God that it will be fitting to refer to that body, even though it's physical, as a spiritual body, meaning a spirit-filled, a spirit-led body. So, to summarize all these images... When Paul says raised, what that doesn't mean is that our souls, primarily what that doesn't mean is that our souls will be raised away from our human bodies up into the clouds. Because remember, he's using the metaphor of a seed. So when Paul says raised, I want us to picture the Charlie Brown Christmas tree, a tiny sapling that dies, its seed goes into the ground, and it grows and grows into a strong, beautiful, and immovable tree, a life-giving tree. He's saying, if you think you know what it means to have a body now, just wait. It's really hard to flip pages when you can't lick your finger. Or like the grocery bags at Trader Joe's. I can never get those open now. Thanks for bearing with me. Um, 
Okay, so in, the, in this metaphor, it's important to notice that there is both continuity and discontinuity between our current bodies and our resurrected bodies. There's continuity because when a seed grows up from the ground, it, it might blossom into something much more glorious than what it was before, but it doesn't become a different type of plant, right? And that's my uh, scientific official statement. Um, <laughs> in a significant sense, our resurrected bodies will still be human, right? I think that's part of what he's saying. We will still be physical. We will still be ourselves, <clears throat> both in body and in soul. But there's also discontinuity in a good way, right? There's no more sin in our bodies, no more suffering, no weakness. It'll be a completely spirit-filled body. So this is important. You're still going to be you, Paul is saying, both in body and in soul. But somehow, you're also going to be transformed into something utterly not you, <laughs> in all the best ways, in all the ways you wish you could. Now, before we move on to our second point, um, I need to take a minute just to, for a quick side note here, because this is, again, a really broad topic, um, maybe too much to try to tackle. But uh, when we talk about our resurrection bodies, we're talking about when Christ returns at the end of human history to raise us up from the grave and to live in and to enjoy the new creation. But this leaves us with the question, if you're thinking about the timeline of the narrative, what happens to our bodies and our souls in between when we die and when Jesus returns? And this is what theologians refer to as the intermediate state. And without going into too much detail, basically the Bible teaches that for those who are believers in Christ, when we die, our souls do immediately enter into the presence of God while we await the resurrection of our bodies. So again, just to be clear, when, when they talk about our resurrection bodies, we're talking about what we're awaiting at the end of human history when Jesus returns to recreate and remake everything. Okay, so thanks for bearing with me. We're covering a lot of ground here. Our second point then is resurrection transformation. If this is Paul's vision of the bodily resurrection, what difference does this actually make in our lives today? If I told you that exactly 10 years from today, $10 million would be transferred into your bank account. Would that make any difference in your life today, in the way that you would live today and tomorrow? You know, if I tell you something surprisingly, unimaginably good is going to happen for sure to you, does that change how you live? Of course it does. You're probably all sitting there imagining all the things you would do differently when you leave church today if you knew you were getting $10 million in 10 years. So this applies to our understanding of the reality of the resurrection as well. As Christians, we are awaiting something unimaginably good for our real physical existence for the rest of time. But here's the challenge in terms of how this transformative power works. Uh, much like the world that was surrounding the Corinthian church uh, in Paul's day, the world that we live in today does not believe in anything close to this idea of a bodily resurrection. If anything, modern secular culture, there's a lot of different views floating around, but to, to try to summarize, modern secular culture would basically say that either this life is all you have, and then you completely cease to exist, or that in some sense, your soul will dissolve into the all soul and kind of the uniting energy of the universe. But your body will still be gone forever. I think those are kind of basically the dominant views in our culture. Uh, 
And therefore, our physical bodies are, not, are just not important. They're not viewed as part of our true selves. Our bodies are simply the shell that our truer inner self inhabits. Which, it makes sense then that we would be free to use our bodies however we want. Because our bodies are just neutral. They're just a dispensable tool that we have at our disposal to express our true inner selves. So, as Christians, we need to reckon with the fact that these ideas um, about the body and about the future of the body are just simply in the air that we breathe. And we also need to reckon with the fact, or at least I do, that most of us in the Western church, as we've already discussed, really haven't been taught much about the bodily resurrection. So functionally, the way this plays out is that most of us, I think, just don't live as if our bodily resurrection is a future reality. And because of this, we're really missing out on the transform- transformative power that the resurrection can have in our lives today. So let me just give you a few examples of what this might look like. If I think that this life is the only physical life that I get, then I should gratify as many of my physical desires as I can, as quickly as I can. See, when we miss out on the reality of the resurrection, we allow ourselves to be ruled by bodily gratification in this life. This has so many implications in the way that we think about sex, in the way that we think about food, in the way that we think about money, uh, generosity, you know, retirement. If all the good things that I can enjoy with this body end when I die, then I need to get as much as I can now. Or if Secondly, if this life is the only physical life that I get, then in a very real sense, my identity is attached to my temporary body image. So if I can perfect and hone my body and control my body, then I'll feel good about myself. But if there are things that I don't like about my body or can't seem to change about my body, then I might be totally defeated by those things. See, when we miss out on the reality of the resurrection, We can get trapped and controlled by this idea that our physical bodies now are all that we have. And so this can kind of create almost a sense of desperation to squeeze meaning and identity out of our present physical bodies. It's like we're trying to make something glorious and powerful out of something perishable and weak. Thirdly, if this life is the only physical life that I get, then I can't avoid living with the fear of death. I just need to distract myself from it. I need to structure my lifestyle in such a way that death is not something I have to think about or be confronted with. Because when we miss out on the reality of the resurrection, death ultimately does destroy everything that we have. This is why a quick Google search told me that the anti-aging market is a $60 billion industry. $60 billion industry. Now, do you see the common thread in just these few examples that that I thought of, of how we miss out on the reality of the resurrection? They all lead down the path towards looking inward, towards selfishness, toward accumulation, towards self-protection, right? And again, these are just a few small examples. I think um, we could think of a lot more, but part of the challenge, the text has for us is to sit with this question. Does the reality of your future bodily resurrection 
make any real difference in your life today. So, here's what this might look like then. If the resurrection is true, instead of being ruled by the need for bodily gratification, we could view everything we do with our bodies as foretastes of what is to come. Everything I do with my body in this life then would be a mere seed that is sown into eternal fruit. So I don't have to scramble for as much gratification as I can get. Rather, in my sexuality, I can have integrity, I can have selflessness, I can even have patience. With my finances, I can be generous and open-handed and at peace. If the resurrection is true, instead of our sense of identity being attached to our body image, we can look forward to the, to the imperishable, glorious, powerful body that is to come. We can and we should take care of our bodies, right? Because they're a gift that points to our future existence, the seed that blossoms into something new. But we can at the same time be free from the need to gain our sense of identity based on what we look like temporarily. We can stop trying to perfect ourselves. And if the resurrection is true, instead of being fearful of death, we can view death not as something we have to escape from and avoid, but rather as something that we pass through into a newer and fuller life. Again, just to be clear, I'm not saying death is good or death is something that Christians celebrate. No, obviously death itself is tragic and evil. But since Jesus was crushed by death and came out on the other side, victorious and resurrected, we can therefore view our death as the passage into our bodily resurrection. And Paul himself draws out this kind of macro application just a few verses later. It's not printed for us, but in starting in verse 54 of this chapter, he says, When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And I'll be honest, um, the reason I started thinking about this stuff a lot is because my grandmother passed away just a couple of weeks ago. And as I was flying uh, down for her funeral, I was thinking about what difference does the reality of the bodily resurrection make as I think about her death? So do you see how the reality of the bodily resurrection actually has transformative power? And I just want to invite you to spend some time thinking about how this applies to your life. How might your life look different if you actually believe this? How might the reality of the resurrection begin to undo some of the selfishness, the inward focus, the fears, and the insecurities of your own life? And even as a church, like how might the reality of the bodily resurrection change how you interact as a community internally and also change how you interact with the world around you? as a church. So this leads us to our last point. Where does this resurrection power come from? If it's true that the reality of the resurrection can transform us, where can we go as our source for this kind of strength and transformation? So let's go back to the text. Uh, Look at verse 45. It says, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. And then skipping to 47. The first man was from earth, 
a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So in these verses, Paul is talking about how all of humankind by nature is connected to this first man, right? The man of dust in all of his sinfulness. He's talking about Adam in his decay, in his trajectory towards death. We are connected to him. This is our inherited state, right? Going all the way back to Genesis 3. And we read Genesis 2 this morning, right? And just, just after that is when everything falls apart. And that's our heritage. This is what we're born into. We're of dust. But these verses also describe a second man, the last Adam, the man of heaven. And we know it's talking about Jesus Christ, right? The one who came into the world to give humanity a second chance or a new start. And I think verse 49 is key here as we try to understand how this connects to the theme we're talking about this morning. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. In other words, the body that we inherit simply by being born into the world bears the image of the man of dust. It's the perishable, dishonorable, weak, natural. But if you belong to Christ, when you're reborn into him, then you have inherited the right to a new body, a new identity, a new bloodline. It's the imperishable, the powerful, the glorious, and the spiritual body because, specifically because, it's the body that bears Jesus' own image. See, our bodily resurrection is not something that happens by God waving a magic wand. Our resurrection is something physical and tangible that Jesus Christ achieved for us in history through his own physical and tangible flesh and blood. And it's interesting if we think about the resurrection means for us getting something unimaginably unimaginably better than what we started with, right? The seed that dies and is raised in glory. But for Jesus, the resurrection means that he inhabits a physical body with the signs of death forever. When he started off, with a perfect spiritual existence, right? From all of eternity, Jesus was together with the Father and the Spirit in the Trinity, transcending the physical world in perfect joy. But in the famous Philippians 2 passage, though he was in the form of God, he did not count quality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. But Paul doesn't stop there. In Philippians chapter 3, he says this, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. So in order for us to inhabit a new body, to bear this new image, to have this, frankly, new resurrection hope, Jesus had to first come into our world and take a physical body on himself. And on the cross, what Jesus was doing was tethering himself 
to us in our physicality. He was becoming perishable and dishonorable and weak. He was becoming, he became devoid of God's spirit in our place. He took on that natural body so that when he rose victorious over death, we could rise with him, imperishable, glorious, powerful, and full of God's spirit. Jesus' mission was to rescue and restore humanity, right? But not as a distant benefactor, uh, not as an aloof God who waves a magic wand from a safe distance. Jesus' mission was to restore and rescue humanity specifically and exclusively by uniting himself to us in flesh and blood. The point is this, the transformative power of the resurrection for our own lives comes from our union with Christ. It doesn't come from our will or our desire to change. It doesn't come from our strength. It comes from our being united in this mysterious physical way to Jesus Christ himself. Jesus loves you, not the theoretical, spiritual idea of you. He loves your physical embodied self. He loves you enough to become a physical embodied self, to die in your place, to unite you to himself on the cross, but also in the resurrection, so that you could enjoy a place of honor with him in the new creation forever. And that is what holds the resurrection power to transform our lives today. Let me pray for us. Our Lord Jesus, the truth is, uh, when we try to fit the glory of what is promised here into our minds, um, it, it almost slips out immediately. It's just too much uh, for us to fathom. But if it's true, it's beautiful beyond what we can imagine, and it brings us more hope than what we can fathom. So thank you, Lord Jesus, for caring enough about us, not just in theory, but in flesh and blood, to come and die. And thank you that you were powerful over death and that we're now united to you. And I do pray for each of us here, for Good Shepherd as a community, to live in light of this resurrection power today and for the months and years to come as a church. Help us to celebrate the reality of the resurrection by living in a new way. Pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.